This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Three great words. Free Fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax must update to rewards. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1991. And Paul, I love podcasting with you. Let's not stop. Let's just keep going. Are you sure? Hit it. The movie, Thelma and Louise. everyone and welcome to Unspooled, where we unspool the greatest films to see if they are classics or if we just remember them that way. I am joined by Amy Nicholson, a film critic who writes for the New York Times. And I am joined by Paul Shear, actor, writer, comedian, raconteur. That's right, Amy. And together we are going to be watching a movie that neither of us have ever seen. This is like one of the first times we have done this on the show, or maybe one of the few times, I should say. And Thelma and Louise is one of those movies where, since I've watched it, I've just been thinking so much about it and thinking about all the different permutations this movie could have been and where it could have gone so wrong. But I think this movie is perfect because of who directed it, who wrote it, and who was cast in it. I think it could have gone way off the rails if one of those things changed. I agree. I agree. I think it is so wonderful when we get to come across a film that becomes such a collaboration in the way that something like Casablanca did, where you feel like you see what everybody added. Maybe they bickered a lot making the film, but they definitely came up with a stronger movie because of it. And I want to ask you, you know, what is this movie? Because there's so many think pieces. It's a feminist film. It's a crime caper. And... At a certain point, I want to understand why we look at Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and go, that's a happy ending, but Thelma and Louise, that's a bummer. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. Well then, shall we ride? Grab my hand, because we are going to go to Mexico, which is the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and let's unspool it. The year is 1991, and Ridley Scott the chili filmmaker of Alien and Blade Runner, is about to do something wildly out of character. Since Blade Runner, he's been in a bit of a filmmaking slump. You know, his movie with Tom Cruise, Legend, not a hit. No, Jack of the Green and that haircut? No. I mean, that movie 
freaked me out. I only saw snips of it on HBO, and I remember there was like a beast with nipples. I don't know if that's true. I don't have any desire to go back to it. But I do know that that's the movie where Tom Cruise is like, I'm never making a movie like this again. Like, he's like, I need to take full control. Anyway, uh, that's where Tom goes over with Ridley's brother, Tony, right? And makes Top Gun, where he has a lot more control. And that becomes a hit, a giant hit. So now Tony is the blockbuster Hollywood brother. And Ridley is now kind of this... I don't know, extraordinarily wealthy TV commercial director whose movies after Alien and Blade Runner are fine? Fine. I mean, he's still Ridley Scott, but critics just think his movies are not human enough to connect with audiences. So then Ridley Scott agrees to produce, not direct, just produce a script by a first-time screenwriter named Callie Curry. In this script has all of the humanity that his own films have been lacking. It's about these two friends. Their names are Thelma and Louise. They have this simple girls' trip weekend that's planned, and they're just going to go fishing in this cabin, and it goes fatally off the rails after they shoot a rapist, commit even more crimes as they try to escape to Mexico in Louise's green convertible Thunderbird. And just so you know, this is not a film that anyone in Hollywood is making or really wants to make, but it's the exact movie that Callie Curry wants to see. I mean, Thelma's this housewife who's married to her high school sweetheart, and Louise is this cynical waitress. And these are the types of characters that Hollywood is not writing for at all. I mean, this is a plum role for great actresses. So everyone in Hollywood wants to play these parts, but no one wants to direct Thelma and Louise, except Callie Curry herself. We will get into all of the big name actresses who did not get to star in this movie in a bit. And we're going to get into why Ridley Scott changed his mind and decided to direct this movie after all. But for now, what is important is that Naive Thelma is played by Gina Davis and World Weary Louise is played by Susan Sarandon. And the rest of the cast is filled out. You know, we've got Christopher McDonald. He's Thelma's horrible husband, Daryl. Who, by the way was uh, actually engaged to Gina Davis, right? And then she broke it off to uh, get together with uh, Jeff Goldblum at the time. But look at that, you know, exes can be friends and co-stars again. They can have a screen chemistry. Uh, You've got Brad Pitt as Thelma's horrible but super hot one-night stand, JD. You've got Harvey Keitel as the empathetic police detective who wants to kind of bring Thelma and Louise in for questioning before anybody else gets hurt. Oh, I love Harvey Keitel in this. We'll talk about it. But this is pre-Reservoir Dogs, pre-Piano uh, Harvey Keitel. So it's an interesting, I think a little bit of a break from how people had seen him in the past. But also, he wasn't this type of person that we all know now. Not the bad lieutenant Harvey Keitel. Uh, the movie comes out on a very special day, Amy. It comes out on May 24th, which I know is your birthday. It comes out in 1991. Were you there front row center on your birthday? Absolutely not. (laughs) But I do know that it did okay at the box office. It did pretty good with reviews, uh, much better reviews than Ridley had had in a while. But where Thelma and Louise really stood out in 1991 is that it set the think piece world on fire. Everybody had to have an opinion on this movie. You know, was it feminist? Was it not feminist? Are Thelma and Louise heroes? Are they villains? Are they victims? Is this movie unfair to men? Is this movie going to corrupt a generation of impressionable girls and make them shoot everybody? My goodness, 
Everyone had thoughts. It's wild that the violence was a large part of the discourse around this movie. Like, is it too violent? When you watch this with movies of the time, especially coming out of the 80s and all the buddy cop movies that we have seen, it is, I would say, on a lesser tier in the violence category. I mean, like, just put this up against Lethal Weapon. No one was freaking out about Lethal Weapon uh, and the amount of violence in that film. Yeah, no one is freaking about about how many people Bruce Willis is killing in Die Hard 2. But Gina (laughs) Davis is like, hey, three people die in Thelma and Louise, and two of them are Thelma and Louise. What is your problem? (laughs) But because of all of this buzz, you know, over the summer of 1991, Thelma and Louise stayed in theaters because people kept trickling in so that they could have their own hot take. And it actually stayed buzzy all through award season, racking up six nominations, including Ridley's first nomination as Best Director. And they got dual Best Actress noms for Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. And Kelly Corey won a statue. That's right. She got an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. So what was on the radio that weekend of May 24th? Well, the zeitgeist was grooving to a tragic torch song by another female star with a huge personality, is a song about how sometimes when the world does you wrong, you should do something other than sob about it. You just gotta, you know, let go. You gotta let all four wheels of your Thunderbird let go of the sand. Embrace the air. Yes! Think of that image as you listen to Mariah Carey in the song, I Don't Wanna Cry. I would have loved that to have been the original uh, ending credit music right there. Just boom. Just launch right into <laughs> a little Mariah Carey. Um, now, Amy, I'm excited to talk to you about this movie because it's the first time that you have seen this movie. It's the first time I have seen this movie. We made a pact that we would watch it together for the show. We didn't watch it together in the same space. But I'm so curious, before I hear what you thought, why you haven't seen it until now. Well, yeah. I mean, when it came out in 1991, there's no way it was going to be allowed to be sitting front row center for a movie that was being talked about as like buzzy, violent, rapey women killing. I mean, my mother is a person who like stocked my entire childhood house with books like Sarah Plain and Tall. No way was I going to get to see this movie. Um, And then it just kind of didn't happen. It's the weirdest thing that I just never had an excuse to go back and watch this film. And then when I found out that neither of us had seen it, I really was excited about waiting. And I've had opportunities to watch this movie since then. And I said, no, because I am going to wait for Paul. And I'm I'm excited. excited. It's so rare to get to see a movie for the first time with just this much buzz and buildup in my life. You know, it, it felt like my own Christmas present. Absolutely. I feel the same way. I mean, I was working at a video store when this was on video, right? And, uh, I think I was put off by, the poster and the trailer. It didn't feel to me like a movie that I would be into. Now, that's also coming from, you know, uh, a freshman in high school's point of view. You know, I'm I'm very much like, uh, you know, I don't want to see this movie. Whatever. I don't care. You know, and it's like, and I'm so amazed that I never got around to it because it is a cultural touchstone. It is a movie that I feel like even if you haven't seen it, you know what the end is. I mean, the end has been parodied a million times. And... There were things about this movie that I thought that were completely off. And then there were things that I felt like 
I got via osmosis. Like the world just gave it to me. It's like if you've never seen, you know, all the Star Wars films, like you know that Darth Vader is Luke's father. Like that reveal is hard to hide from people. Um, And that's how I felt about this movie. There are certain things that I felt like, oh, I've seen this, but I never, I never had seen it. No, like when I decide that there's something that I don't want to know about, I'm very good at blocking it out of my brain. I am too. And so this whole time, up, up up until yesterday, I always thought that in Thelma and Louise, they killed Brad Pitt. Oh, wow. I just always thought, I thought like Brad Pitt came in and he was cute and then he did something wrong and then they shot him. I just always had the scene in my head of like there being a scene in Thelma and Louise where Gina Davis grabs a gun and shoots Brad Pitt in a hotel room. Because I knew he had a scene in a hotel room because I've seen that still of him in the hairdryer. But that was all I knew. So I figured something really, really went wrong and Brad Pitt died in this movie. Well, I think the thing that I was so surprised at was how this movie starts and where it goes from where it starts. And, you know, we talked about it in the beginning. It sets up these two women that are going to just go on a a fishing trip. They're just out to have a fun weekend. And it quickly spirals. And the inciting incident is that, you know, Gina Davis is almost is raped in the parking lot of this bar that they go to. And then they kill this guy who was attempting to rape her. And I never knew that detail. I just thought this was a movie about, you know, two women who decide like, we're going to have a girl's trip. And that turns into like, uh, like a Bonnie and Clyde type of movie, like really fun, kind of crazy, good times. And I didn't realize how, I think incredibly grounded this movie was and where it started from and what it was kind of doing and saying. And in many ways, it felt to me very similar to true romance because you're talking about Tony Scott and Ridley Scott. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. These two unlikely people or these two people who start off in one direction, not trying to do anything bad, quickly get their foot in quicksand. And then it just keeps on getting deeper and deeper. And that's where I kind of started to want to have this conversation with you because I know there's so much talk about this as a feminist film. But I also see so many more comparisons to this as a contemporary to all the buddy cop films, all the buddy action movies I have seen growing up that I loved. And that was kind of the thing that I was most surprised at in watching this film. I was like, oh, wow, this is much more of of an action film that doesn't feel forced. It feels grounded. It feels like these characters are real. It, it, It kind of is like an indie version of some of my favorite films. Yeah, I mean, you know that bad things are gonna happen. I would say from like the first lick of the opening guitar in the opening seconds of this movie. I mean, as soon as you hear that kind of guitar, that like renegade guitar sound, you know, like a car wheel is going to run over a tumbleweed, you know, some old man's going to be playing guitar in the back of a bar, like something like that is going to happen when you hear that. Maybe that's just because I associate it with Bon Jovi. But but to that point, like, I wonder what was going on in the early 90s when we did have that kind of spate of, like, people on the run movies because there was true romance, like you said, but there was also California. There was natural born killers. There was suddenly this, like, people going on sprees in cars renaissance. 
Maybe it was just mm. the people who grew up like loving Bonnie and Clyde when they're a little finally getting greenlit to do their own movie. And they're like, well, I want to do my Bonnie and Clyde. But but yeah, there was this little spate of like the true American value is to for two people to get in a car and bad things to happen. You know, freedom of the road. And I think the reason why it feels like an action movie from the minute we jump into it is because the average shot length is like six seconds. It's just constantly cutting. And it feels like it has this pace, like it is outrunning these characters in a way, like the characters are just keeping up. We're just in this in this mode from the minute the movie starts. And I feel like we're thrown into the lives of these two women and we get them instantly. Yeah. I mean, first we have like Susan as Louise, like as this waiter warning younger girls that smoking kills your sex drive, but then immediately smoking You know, this woman who, like, makes pronouncements, thinks she's sensible, doesn't always do what she thinks she does, but has these ideas and these, like, rules. And then you immediately cut to Thelma, to Gina Davis's Thelma, and the camera in her kitchen as we're sort of watching her have this conversation with her husband is so kind of nervous and twitchy and handheld and it's looking around and you're looking at Gina Davis's house. And her house is so chaotic is really the only word I can think of it. You know, it's just the two of them, but there's, like, magazines taped all over the walls, images of like perfect, you know, kitchens that you can have if you remodel recipes, like stuff is just stuck everywhere. It's so like disorganized. And then when you cut back to like Louise in her kitchen, it's like even her sponges are neatly organized and tidy. And she's like washing her dishes and drying them and leaving them out. And these two women are just completely introduced as opposites from the very beginning. You know, Louise is in her like tough black jacket and like, Thelma is wearing like pearls on her denim jacket, which is such a look. And is that going to come back in style? Because it's amazing. (laughs) And that's one of the first things I really love about their relationship is that they're opposites who seem to sort of embrace what's ridiculous and goofy about the other one that, you know, Thelma is running up into like Louise's perfect convertible car, trying to pack like a, a swimming pool cleaning net, trying to pack like a lantern in case they need it. Being like, oh, I just brought a gun just because. Oh, Louise, uh-huh. will you take care of this gun? What in hell did you bring that for? Oh, come on, psycho killers and bears or snakes? I just don't know how to use it. Will you take care will of it? Put it away. Just here, put it in my purse. Tell me, good Lord. And to me, this is like my ultimate view of romance, like either between a couple or between two friends, is when you see a person for all of their foibles and you're like, yeah, you're still my person with all of our foibles. And so to have these two people who don't even seem like they would naturally get along, just embrace each other's weirdness and eccentricities. I adore that about this friendship right from the beginning. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. All these little details that you see right from the start, 
just go to give you so much information about who they are. I mean, whether it is, you know, putting, you know, shoes in a baggie or like you said, carrying like a a gun to this fishing trip weekend, every little detail gives us so much about these characters. And I think from the first minute you see uh, the Christopher McDonald and the way that he exits the house and is screaming at the people working at his house, but also being low status because he's slipping it. Like you get what that relationship is that she's kind of escaping from. So as the movie progresses, you don't need Thelma to get into a whole reason of why she's unfulfilled. We get it from really the first three minutes of the movie. We, I feel like we're living in these characters more organically than having, you know, Danny Glover say like, Oh, I'm, I'm two days away from my retirement. I'm too old for this shit. Like we're not like, no one's laying down like what the stakes are. We're just thrown in and we know what the stakes are just by seeing them. Yeah, you know everything about Thelma and Daryl's marriage just in the opening conversation. You know, even just in these like 30 seconds about like, hey, what do you want to do about dinner? Hon? What? You want anything special for dinner tonight? No, Thelma, I don't give a shit what we have for dinner. I may not even make it home for dinner. You know how Fridays are. Yeah, funny how so many people want to buy a car down Friday night. mean, even in that, you kind of get this sense like, is Thelma implying that she thinks that her husband is cheating on her on Friday nights? Whatever it is, he's not going home. But in the way that the movie doles out information to us, it doles it out kind of just with with picking up the inference clues. Because the thing about Thelma and Louise is like, they know each other so well. They know each other's lives so well that Louise is not going to be asking Thelma, how long have you been married to that guy again? Right. You got married, what? You started dating when you were 14, blah, blah, blah. Like, she doesn't need to explain it to, to Louise because Louise knows everything about her already. And so it's just in these like little tiny bits of dialogue that then we get these insights into a whole world. And that also means that like when Thelma picks up on the things that Louise isn't telling her, that you must know how important those things are to Louise, that she doesn't want to talk about that. You know, it's interesting too, because I was thinking about a lot of the movies that this feels similar to. And a lot of those films are movies in which the two characters are getting to know each other, right? The arc of the movie or the arc of the relationship is we didn't like each other at first and now we're best buds, right? Like that's the buddy cop formula for, you know, a majority of films, you know, whether it is, you know, 48 hours, uh, even true romance. Like he doesn't know Patricia Arquette in the beginning. And then of course they bond. But yeah. I think what's so interesting about this is to have a movie in which the two characters know each other. They're there. There are like, and they are friends. There's no bullshit conflict to separate them, to make them like, oh, they got to overcome this to, uh, to work together. And I think that that makes the movie way more interesting. Cause I, I think you can just go in, not even rooting for either one or even feeling one way about the other. You're just watching these two friends. And it's in a weird way. It's the way I feel about like, watching those uh, Steve Coogan movies, the the trip, you know, it's oh, like yeah. you're just watching two people be 
with each other. And I love that. I love that about this movie. And I think it makes everything feel more earned. So it's like when you have these giant action sequences, uh, whether or not it's like this amazing stunt driving scene, you know, and, you know, one of them turns to the other and says like, great driving. Like it, that's a joke, but it also is like an earned real joke. It doesn't feel like, you know, Danny Glover, you know, shooting a South African diplomat going like, you've been decaffeinated, you know, and which I do love that line, Shane Black line, (laughs) I think maybe, who knows, maybe I shouldn't uh, curse Shane Black with that line. But, uh, but you know what I'm saying? It's just like everything about it, like it takes away a lot of the pretense of what we know of a buddy cop movie and gives us what we really want to see, which is often the sequel to the buddy cop movie. Right. Where they already know each other. It's like, we are buddies. And yeah. now we're in the movie. But I, I mean, in a way, there's bits of this that aren't that different from last week's movie, from like planes, trains and automobiles. I was about that too, yeah. Because you have, you know, the organized one, the one who's kind of like, I'm prepared. I know what's happening. I have a way things are supposed to go. That's Louise. And then you have the friend who's just more of a impulsive mess, who seems to be the one who keeps like disrupting the trip over and over and over again. That Thelma's like, oops, I brought a gun. Oh, dear, I'm getting really, really drunk. Oh, no, this guy stole all of our money and it's my fault. Oh, no, I accidentally like told the cops where we're going because I told this guy like, like, in a way, Thelma is the John Candy who is like sabotaging the easy getaway. Like if it weren't for Thelma, Louise is in Mexico. Right. Right. But if it isn't for Thelma, like Louise doesn't rebound like that robbery even though it's a sloppy robbery at the end you know like Thelma maybe this idea that like oh it's the odd couple dynamic like one will never be responsible but I do think Thelma sees Louise in trouble and then is able to make that like is able to step up I I don't want to like just degrade it by saying like oh she gets one good lay and then is amazed you know becomes a fuller person but there is this yeah. thing where she is there for her. She doesn't ever have to be until that moment. Like, right, because their dynamic doesn't have, like, sets it up in a way where she never has to be there for her because Louise is the one that's always there for Thelma, right? So I feel like it is interesting to right. show that, like, that that growth of friendship. I think a true friendship, that will happen. You you will step in and, and support your your friend when they fall. True. I mean, I think part of what's happening is, like, Thelma got married to her high school sweetheart. Like Thelma never got to grow up, I think, in a lot of ways. Mm. I think like some part of Thelma stopped growing up at 14 when she met Daryl. And then they dated for four years and then they got married and she's never had any life experience. And she's always kind of done what Daryl orders her to do. So these like little steps of freedom she takes, you know, like leaving without telling him. That's like step one to her kind of being like, who am I really without this relationship around? And then, yeah, like having sex with Brad Pitt. A scene that, by the way, was shot to be like 15 minutes long, crazy erotic, so much more erotic than anything that we see on this camera. Um, And they finally were like, you know, it's really hot, but it is so distracting watching these two people just like go at it that we actually have to cut this down. Otherwise, like you're not even like paying attention to what the movie is anymore. You're just like, (laughs) wow. Oh, my gosh, that's happening. But it's like it's not even so much, I think, to be like she got laid really well and now she's a different person. It's like. She broke a rule and she find out she found out she liked breaking that rule. You know, it's like it's like what that lay meant to who she is as a person, even more than the lay itself. Well, you know? I would also argue like part of that is passion. 
right? There's a passion there. There's like a energy. There's a life in that. And there's a life in a lot of these moments that they have, but that's like a a good energy. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they, they you know, she's involved in a murder. They're on the run. They're desperate. But like there is this rebirth like right like the the house itself is arrested development like you said it's it, it's you know she's an adult she shouldn't have all these pictures up like that or you know or you'd think like it yeah. feels like it feels like you said like a high schooler's house in a way yeah. right it has that energy to it like if kids you have are an article about house. your dream kitchen pasted up in your messy kitchen you're never gonna yeah. get your dream kitchen you're not doing anything to get it except looking at a piece of paper that then makes your kitchen more of a nightmare because it looks so messy and and it's like and and she treats her husband in a way like you would treat your parents. Like I'm sneaking out. I'm just not telling him. I'm just gonna go right. I'm gonna sneak out for the night. I'm gonna I'm gonna come in later. And I, and there is this energy about it where there's no passion, right? And I think Susan Sarandon, we find out later, you know, obviously has had different relationships and expected different things. But it's like she's lived more of a full a full life. I I think the thing that I'm kind of wrestling with as we're talking about it too, is the tone shifts that this movie takes. It really does feel, and I know it's a cliche thing to say, but like a roller coaster. It's like, you really are, you know, making these giant leaps as far as filmmaking is concerned. Like, you know, when, when you get to that rape scene in, in the, in the beginning there, I was like, Whoa, Whoa, I wait, what's going on? Like it didn't, it felt like, okay, Maybe he's going to force himself on her, but it goes and it turns on a dime. And we we're talking about Ridley Scott in the beginning and saying like, oh, he's not really been in touch with himself. He doesn't really know how to convey all these emotions. And this is a movie that I think is so full of emotion and showing characters in so many different moments and, and ways and switching from action to drama to, you know, to comedy and doing it so seamlessly that I, I think I'm really impressed with him as a director here. I'm and big look, I have to also say that that's Callie Corey's script too. like bring him into those spots, but it really, I think really isn't afraid to go there. And I also think I just read Gina Davis's book, which is great. And if you haven't read it, it, you should definitely check it out. And there's great stories about this. And I think that's how I kind of felt a little bit more connected to this movie because, uh, I read a lot of stories about it before seeing it. Um, but you know, Susan Sarandon from day one, would sit down with Ridley Scott and and empower Gina Davis to do this too and be like, we got to rip up this script from every little detail and and saying no to him at every given turn to kind of, to do the the thing that felt more truthful and real versus the thing that maybe felt more Hollywood and and big. You know, like at one point, like Ridley Scott's like, you should take your top off for this. And, you know, and, you know, Susan Sarandos was like, no the fuck are you talking about? No, I'm not doing that. Like, so it's yeah. almost like, yeah, he wanted this... Gina to like, feel like you're exuberant. Now you're riding shotgun in the car. You're so excited driving through the desert, Gina, that you take your shirt off. So make that happen emotionally. And she went and talked to Susan. She's like, what? I don't yeah. want to do that. And so Susan went up to him and she's like, she's not doing that. And Gina kind of felt a little bit like, man, I wish I'd had the balls to do that myself. But, but I mean, like Ridley Scott had drawn a storyboard, hand-drawn storyboard. That's like Gina without her shirt on in the car. He's like, what? <laughs> so I wonder in a weird way to have like these four people basically ping-ponging off each other. So we have this script, we have Ridley Scott, and then we have these 
two lead actresses, everybody who is hands gripping on the wheel, just going for it and and basically keeping everybody in check, right? To to make sure that everyone is being as truthful, making the movie as big as possible. Because I also think that what Ridley Scott's amazing at is directing these action sequences and making these small moments pop, whether it is blowing up the tanker truck and, and you know, or or getting you into that, um, into these scenes in these hotels where even that thing with Brad Pitt, you're talking about that 15 minute long sex scene. Like even to be able to do that for him to be able to get into those moments. Like, I feel like he was really able to elevate the style of it. While I think Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon really kept this train on track, like as far as like the grounding of it at every given point. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is a good point just to sort of jump back and talk about Callie Corey, talk about Ridley Scott, talk about how this even came together, because it is just such an outlier in his entire career up until this point. I mean, so so Callie Curry, she is this like woman who grew up in Kentucky. You know, she spent a lot of time like waitressing in different bars, which I love because we have that line in here from the waitress in this movie who's like, you know, if waiting tables don't make you an expert in human nature, you know, like as in... That is like, I think, like an undervalued way of being a person who can write great characters is you like you work in the service industry. You meet people all the time. You see how people act. Uh, But that's her background. And it was like while she was waiting tables at a bar in uh, Nashville, she met the country singer Pam Tillis, who wasn't like a big deal yet. You know, she's sort of rising through the country singer ranks and they became best friends. And they had this like real Dalma and Louise dynamic. Like Callie was like the practical Louise and, you know. Pam, this country singer, this artist, this musician was like the kind of like all over the place Thelma. And they became this like best friend dynamic where they were like separately, we're cool together. We're this third thing that's like even more powerful. And so then Callie is like, what do I want to do with my life? Maybe I want to be an actor. She tried, you know, auditioning. Agents would tell her stuff like, you don't wear enough makeup. So then she was just sort of in Hollywood waiting tables at like the improv for a long time at the comedy store. And she has a story where like one day she was walking to her car after work and she's being walked to her car by Larry David because he wants to make sure she gets to her car. Okay. And they both get held up by a shotgun. So she's like living these kind of dangerous moments in the city. And she's like, I want to write the kind of movie that if I were an actress, I would, I would want to play. I want to, I want to like build a career, you know, like, Because one of the other things she starts doing for money is she becomes like a music video producer. And so she's like producing all of these like Sunset Strip music videos, you know, like Motley Crue, Billy Idol, White Snake. And they're all at that time, as much as I love these bands, like super sexist as hell music videos where she's like dealing with dancers who are like, help, all these guys are groping me. You know, producers who are like, just have that babe take take her tits out. That's all we need from this woman. And she's like, what is happening? You know, like I am a creative woman whose best friend is a creative woman. And here I am in this creative town and I'm only surrounded by like men who treat women like garbage. And how am I going to get out of this? And so she starts to write this script, you know, that's like basically the kind of movie she would want to be in, the kind of movie she'd want to make anything that is like different than the macho vibe that she's surrounded by. And then the script does finally make it to Ridley Scott, who is like, I think this is a really interesting idea. I can see it visually, like the Americana of it, the big landscapes. But absolutely, I don't understand women enough to make this movie. I surely can't do it, but I will help you find a director. And so then he starts going out to all of these directors he knows, being like, hey, will you direct this movie? I think it's amazing. I'm going to produce it. 
they immediately, right at the beginning, have like Michelle Pfeiffer and Jodie Foster attached because they're like, yes, we're giant stars. This is a movie with amazing parts for us. Jodie Foster wants to play Thelma. Michelle Pfeiffer is going to play Louise. And yet, with these two gigantic movie stars and like Ridley Scott attached to produce, nobody wants to direct it because all of these male directors that they're taking it to are like, I don't really get it. Why do they kill people? I don't understand. I don't think I can do this. One person refers to it as just like, bitches in a car, you know? And meanwhile, you know, Ridley Scott, who, it's interesting. Like, there are moments in Ridley Scott's career up to this where you can be like, Ridley Scott is super feminist. I mean, this is the guy who made, you know, Alien and had it star Sigourney Weaver. This is the guy who did that, like, Apple 1984 commercial where, like, a female athlete, a female athlete is the one who, like, takes down, you know, the giant oppressive machine. And yet Ridley, whenever he's asked about his feminism, is like, eh, nah, not really. You know, like, he's like, yeah, that athlete was female in that Apple commercial because she had a great ass. You know, like, that's what he says is, like, a counterpoint. And he's even telling, like, Callie, you know, who's like, I would love to direct this. He's like, there's no way you're going to get to direct this. And he's like, and by the way, we need to have a man direct this. Because if we have a female director direct this, it's going to get too screechy. It's going to get too loud. It's going to be too, like, female. We have to have a man direct this to keep it in balance. But, of course... No man will do it. He's talking to Callie all the time about the script and how he wants to fix it. And Callie is a person who's like arguing with him toe to toe on everything. She's like, this has to happen. They have to die. The women have to be like this. And she's really fighting for the integrity. And as she's fighting for the integrity of these female characters, there something does kind of click open in Ridley where he's like, I understand them better now. Because Callie is like taking all of his conceptions about what this movie is and saying, no, 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 that's not how women think, and that's not how they act, and that's that's what needs to happen here. And in that process of arguing with her so much, it did open Ridley's heart to it, and he was like, maybe I'm not finding a good male director for this because maybe deep down I want to do this. And so he finally is like, I can picture it, I can picture the landscape, and I've had so many arguments with Callie about who this is that I actually think I do kind of understand it a little bit. But Gina Davis is going to take off her shirt and drive around in a car. I wonder if, in a weird way, he's kind of the perfect person to direct it. Because in thinking that he couldn't make a feminist film, he kind of realized that, in a way, there's nothing different in the filmmaking of an action film with two male leads you know, versus a film with two female leads. Now, what goes on in the minds and characters yes giantly different but i think that's what you see on film i think the film is directed the way that you would direct you know a a typical buddy male buddy movie of this time and i think in a weird way that kind of combination of his style with callie and gina and susan sarandon's strong points of view of their characters and of the script really kind of forced him to be like oh i can make a movie that is truly feminist because it's equal. Like you could, I think this is the argument of this movie. It's like the argument of this movie is, is it a feminist film or is it an action film? And I think it can be, I think you make an argument for it to be both. And I don't necessarily think it has to be either one or it, it can, you know, like this is an interesting thing. I keep on reading about all these like think pieces, like you said, about is this a feminist film? And in a way, it simply is just because it gives a movie that is, or a type of movie that is in, dominated mostly by men to women. So in that way, it's an equal film on that way. But I also think, 
and the way the movie ends and the way that I think his attitude towards wanting to make changes, you know, whether it is having uh, Gina Davis flash, you know, uh, flash her breasts at one scene or, you know, changing the ending so they don't die or else one of them dies or, you know, uh, or Susan Sarandon gets married at the end. All these kind of weird changes that would have made it a happy ending. Like they stayed so steadfast. And I think that makes it a much bigger statement, a, a much more of a, a statement about like how women might be treated in society, which I think is not necessarily, well, maybe it is a feminist point of view. I don't know. I'm like, I get nervous when a movie like this is only viewed in that lens because I think it stops certain people like me, like high school me from watching this movie and then not actually growing and learning from like really great characters and, and getting like a, a wider worldview. If that makes sense. I mean, I can understand why high school you would see the trailer and be like, I don't know about this because the trailer is ridiculous. Did you see his butt? <laughs> Summer, have you lost your mind? But what I hear in what you're saying and that I do kind of agree with is like the production of this movie. And there's a very, very good book about the production of this movie. It's called Off the Cliff. It's written by Becky Aikman. Very good. Um, it talks a lot about this kind of multi-person dynamic, this like foursome of this movie, you know, Susan, Gina, Ridley, Callie, and how they clash. And I think you're right that like in the clashing, it made things stronger that everybody, you know, Susan Cernan is a person who will very much stick up for her characters, very much stick up for everything she wants. We'll say like, I want to cut this dialogue. I'm not going to do that. This is what's right. And she'll really argue the point with like, you know, so much inside into her characters Callie is also like that. Ridley is also like that. Gina has become like that, I think, in a lot be- a lot because of this experience. And when you hear how the making of this movie went for Callie, it seems like it was really, really hard. You know, like Callie, you know, was not welcome on set very much because they thought she was going to argue too much, slow things down. She wasn't even invited to Cannes when they brought it to Cannes. Pretty rough. Um, <sighs> but yet. Wow. But yet to that point. What Ridley adds to it is a movie that people will then watch, you know, because like the way that Kelly Curry pictured it when she pictured herself directing it was without it be kind of, you know, a tiny little Sundancey low budget movie. You know, she thought maybe she could get Holly Hunter, maybe she could get Frances McDormand to be in it. And it would be that kind of like under the radar little movie that critics would be like, oh, it's pretty good. And nobody would see it. And then Ridley Scott is going to come in and be like, but we're also going to blow up a gas tanker. You know, right. And we're going to blow it up and it's going to look fucking great. And I and because I'm really Scott, I will have the money to do this. I will have the know how to do this. And this will not be a tiny movie. This will come across feeling big and epic and like a movie that you need to see. And, you know, is it worth that? Is it worth that trade off, you know, to have like a less female made film, but a more publicly seen film? I think so. I think that that's the type of movie that brings people in, you know, not to kind of jump lanes, but I think that that's where, you know, something like Get Out really works well, too. It's like, oh, here's a movie that like everyone's going to see because they hear it's a good horror movie. And then they leave thinking about something maybe a little bit under the surface they haven't really thought about or it triggers some part of them. And I think that that to me if you live in that world of making like your independent films, you're only going to have a certain audience, probably an audience that 
is already attuned to what you are saying and making. And I think if you can kind of combine the two, and I think you see that in sci-fi and horror a lot, and very rarely do you see it in action. Um, and and I would argue, you know, comedy, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more, but I don't know if you're walking away with like a think piece there as much. But if you look at this movie, I, I do think the reason why it stays around is because it's like, oh, did you, I want to have an opinion about this. I want to look at it. I want to, I want to hear what everyone's talking about. And I think that sometimes comedies, it's hard to, to do that with, but you know, with a horror or sci-fi or, you know, and, and very rarely, but sometimes like an action film like this, or, you know, a caper like this, you want to be part of that conversation. So I do think it's important to get it out to as many people as possible, because then you also get, interesting think pieces and you also get dumb ones you get dumb ones that's like this movie's too violent and is it too violent because you're seeing two women that you don't want to see either be hurt or do things that you feel like are unsafe for them it's it's a weird interesting societal thing it's like well we don't want to see like gina davis robs a store but she doesn't hurt anybody but maybe we don't want to see gina davis like that at that point yeah i mean when she robs a store it's kind of adorable there is. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is a robbery. Now, if nobody loses their head, nobody will lose their head. Sam said, y'all lie down on the floor, please, right away. Me too. Ma'am, would you get down? Not you, sir. Let's see who'll win a prize for keeping their cool. Sir, would you do the honors? Take all the cash out of that girl, put it in a paper bag. Yes, ma'am. You're going to have an amazing story to tell all your friends. Hey, uh, get some bottles of wild turkey, too, will you? Yes, ma'am. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is not a violent movie, but what I would say it is, is it's just a movie where the violence that you see is really realistic. Like, this is just a movie where when they do shoot Harlan— a scene that I think we should just, let's just play that right now, you know, and how that goes. And to, to kind of set this up, like, uh, Susan Sarandon has caught Harlan, you know, attacking Gina in the back of this of this bar in the parking lot. She's put the gun to his neck. Uh, he's backed away. They're about to leave the situation. But Harlan is just being a dick in something, and Luis just breaks. Turn around. <laughs> In the future, when a woman's crying like that, she isn't having any fun. Bitch, I should have gone ahead and fucked her. What did you say? I said, suck my cock. God. Oh, my God. Get the car. Oh, Jesus. What makes that feel, I think, even more violent than it is, 
you know, on the scale of like a lethal weapon, on the scale of like a diehard, is that you just see the blood for a while and then you see the blood and you see the bruises on Gina's face. And it just takes several scenes for Gina to kind of get a chance to wash her face, to wash the violence off. And you're like spending time in the aftermath of violence. And I think it's that aftermath that is that is so unsettling. And the scene just in general, like Kelly Curry said that when she wrote it, her expectation would be that, you know, Luis killing a guy who is at that point technically not hurting them. He's just being a dick at this point. He's just being a complete dick that her shooting him would make the theater just go dead silent and be like, I can't believe that this character that I love and that I'm empathizing with just executed a man. And yet, you know, what happened is people sometimes cheered, people clapped. And that was not the anticipate. That was not what she was expecting. You know, when you cheer and clap at that scene, you're basically like, yeah, kill everyone. You know, and she wasn't going for that. She was going for like, what would make a human do a thing so shocking? Not like, huzzah. Well, but I also think it's like you are watching your character be attacked. Like you're, that's, you know, look, we don't know that person. And I think that the movie does a really good job of lacing that, the aftermath of that and making it really grounded. Like, what did we just do? We did something awful. Yeah. Like Um, Susan talks to his dead body. She's yeah. like, you know, shut your mouth now. And it's like, there's, a, it's almost like a disassociation. Well, like, she's also going through her own trauma that she's reliving from, yeah. you know, like what she went through. I, I think, but I think as, as an audience, it's like, it's like Indiana Jones. Like we are excited when that big Nazi gets chewed up by the airplane in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's, it's why, because he's punching Indiana Jones. It's like whenever you see a bad guy punching our hero, or hurting our hero, you want to see them taken down, you know, and that, and I do think it's hard to, in a movie, I think we do root for that. I agree with you. It's not the, it's not the, you don't want that in the, it's a visceral reaction. I think this movie is that visceral reaction of that. Like, you know, even the fact that she decides to shoot him, it's, it's like, there's a fantasy there. There's a fantasy of like, fuck this guy. You know, it's like, they like, um, we don't have to go through like the right way to get justice. We don't have to do this. Like, and that's kind of the thing. It's like you say earlier, like, Oh, Gina Davis, like, you know, got free by breaking the rules. Well, that's breaking the rules. Like she's saying, we don't have to, we don't have to be polite. We don't have to sit here. We don't have to do anything. And the, and that's the, the ending of the movie is the same thing. Like we don't have to deal with consequences here. We make our own ending. We make our, we get out of this our way done. And I, yeah, I think that this movie is all about like, is wish fulfillment? Like, what if we just, just never went back? What if we just fucking killed that guy? What if I robbed that store? Like, what if, you know, it's, it, it really is. And this is maybe going back to the feminism part of it. It's like the world in which society especially at this point has put women into these roles that they can't break out of it. And I think both of these women are in roles and one may be more uh, aware of what those rules are. And one may be just living in those rules and wanting to buck the trend of it. But it is that idea of we don't have to live by these rules. We can make our own rules. And I think that that is heroic. Part of me that wants to be like, if this is wish fulfillment, 
they would have made it to Mexico. They would have had those margaritas. Thelma would have got that job at but Club that's Med. Like a, and it's right. like, and it's like, it, the wish cannot be fulfilled. You know, it can be, right. you, can, you can execute steps of it, but you can't get all the way there. I mean, you know, one of the reactions to this murder that I most identify with, like it takes place like an hour later into the movie when like Thelma and Louise are driving and Thelma's just sort of reenacting it in her head. Laughing, cackling, feeling so conflicted. What? What? <laughs> Harlan. <laughs> what about it? Just a. Uh, <laughs> just a uh, look on his face. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's. It's wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Suck my dick. <laughs> Delmont's not funny. <laughs> I know. Oh. I mean, that encapsulation of there's just so many different ways to feel about this. You know, and part of what I find really interesting about their dynamic is like, when Luis shoots that man, when Luis is like, okay, I'm going to get this money, I'm going to go to Mexico, that's my plan. And then when Thelma fucks up that plan by, you know having their hotel room get robbed, which also happens in, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles. And Louise realizes that that's it for her. You know, they have that scene where Louise is just broken. Louise, it's okay. It's okay. No, Thelma, it's not okay. It's definitely not okay. None of this is okay. I mean, what am I gonna do for money, huh? How are we gonna get gas? I mean, trade on our good looks. <laughs> I mean, oh God, Thelma's not okay. Yes, this like dovetails with like Thelma, you know, getting laid and like rising up and like coming into her power. But part of why I think she's allowed to do that is because Louise also just knows that she's dead. And like Luis isn't going to come out and tell Thelma that it's over for her, but I think Luis knows it's over. And that I think like at that point, Luis is like, I'm going to ride this road out as best I can. But it's like, I feel like she knows where that road ends. It's like a Butch Cassidy in the Sundance Kid story, but like she's the only one who knows how this is going to end, that she's not going to escape this. And maybe but, she can but, get Thelma out of the car, but maybe she won't. But I guess my question is, why do we look at Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and say, we leave differently? Like you leave the end of Butch casting the Sundance Kid and go, wow, they did it. You know, like, but this, you're like, fuck, wow. It like people, it's a quote unquote, like downer ending. What's the difference? I mean, to me, the difference is like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid chose crime and chose living outside of the system and succeeded in doing that. Thelma and Louise just wanted to go fishing drink a couple of shots of wild turkey and not have anything bad happen to them and the world around them pushed them into this position. You know, like that really great scene where Harvey Keitel is like, to Brad Pitt, you robbed them, this is on you. You pushed them into this. They didn't get to make this choice. Soon I got a feeling about something then. Yeah? I just want to ask your opinion. Do you think Thelma Dickinson would have committed armed robbery if you hadn't taken all their money? off that table. Cat got your tongue? 
No, no. Well, how, how you know I took it? How, how you, you know they didn't sort it? You fucking lie to me. There's two girls out there that had a chance. They had a chance. And now you've screwed it up with them. No. And now they're in some serious trouble. And I'm going to hold you personally responsible for at least part of it if anything happens to them. I got no feeling for you. Now, you're either going to tell me every damn thing you know. So there's a small chance I can actually do them some good. Or I'm going to be all over you like a fly on ship for the rest of your natural life. So I think the fact that they are only reactive and not proactive makes it sad. Like well, they they seize their moments of making choices, but in a lot of ways they don't. It's like it's like it's like being on the cars ride at Disneyland. You can kind of twist the steering wheel in a lot of ways, and maybe you can crash into somebody, but you don't get to off road and go on to Amy, like Amy, space Amy, Amy, you're talking about Autotopia. You're not talking about the cars ride. Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> 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 the um. Well, look, but I think, I guess then the question is, would you rather live for a moment or never really live? Right? Because these women, and I know what you're saying, like, it would be great for them to get to Mexico. But I also think like part of the the ending of this is, I think that there is something about the society, like what society expects of women. Like this is like, in a way, like they know that even if they get to Mexico, it, they, I, I just don't think it's a dream that's like, will it ever happen? I don't know. I, I just think it's like they, they get to live and they get what they want for a second. And then their lives are over. Is that better than them just going and going fishing for a weekend, drinking some beers? And I think it is. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, we've talked about like how this is. You know, Thelma needing to be free, Thelma needing to like, you know, let her hair down, shoot her wild turkey. But we haven't gotten to talk as much about the psychology of Louise. And we have a really great opportunity to. And we have these like parallel nights they have with the men in their lives. Yeah. Where Thelma, of course, is like instantly trusting. Brad Pitt is like, I'm a robber. And she's like, great. Totally fine by me. It's okay. Whereas... Louise is a person who I think has like set up her life in a way where she almost guarantees her own disappointment. You know, like she has this boyfriend. She doesn't trust that he'll propose. She feels like she has to go out of town to even get his attention. And and then when he does propose, she already still has so many walls up about this idea of even like trusting anybody and letting herself get hurt that she doesn't even take this proposal seriously. Won't you try it on? I didn't see that one coming, did you? Why, Jimmy? Why now? Uh, I'll try not to get too excited, Louise. I just flew across two states with that ring in my fucking hand, and, uh, uh, you know I hate to fly. You came all this way because you thought I was with somebody else. No, oh, no, that's not why I came. Because, uh, you know, I, I don't want to lose you. And I get the feeling like you're going to, like, split. And, you know, this scene was one of the scenes that they worked on the most, like, in, in the pre-production, because, like, it was originally written that 
that Louise would also get this nice romantic night. You know, that Jimmy would show up, he'd give her a ring, she'd put the ring on, she'd cry with joy. They'd make tender love in this motel room all night. And Louise would get her, she would get her moment of pleasure. But Susan was like, that does not feel true to me. Michael Madsen was also like, I don't really buy that this guy would want to do that. I think this guy, this guy is not like the the soft, gentle proposing type. And there's something in this Louise character that never gets her romance and never gets like her catharsis or her joy the way that Thelma does. And is kind of, I think, driving the car off the cliff her whole life, you know? And there's something so sad about that. Well, I mean, I think that she's tragic because she is using control to keep herself, like, like we said, that we see everything in her life. It's perfect. It's pristine. She has to live in this box, right? And this movie is about breaking that box. I think the most important scene for her is, you know, with this, this Michael Madsen character, you know, this is like, really, I love that scene there because it's sort of like somebody is there for her. That that moment there between her and him, like he came for her. He didn't betray her. He got her back. He supported her. And and in a way, that's that's what she needed. She doesn't need to like have sex with him. She doesn't need, I think there was that story where she's gonna get married to him. You know, that's her journey needed that kind of conclusion. Like, no, no, somebody's there for me. I don't have to just make everything controlled and organized so I can keep everything together. Like somebody else got her. And then Thelma does that when she is down in the dumps or she's like, I'm lost. I have, we have no money. We have nothing. And then she gets her back. Like those are important things for her to like realize. And again, their lives are going to be over within, you know, 12 hours of this. But I think this movie is about finding one's power that they have inside and whether that's something that's been unleashed in them or giving over to something. And I think that that's what they're, what's happening with them is one is like becoming more and the other one is like trusting more. Well, yeah, they've kind of merged like, yeah, like Thelma was all kind of feminine and white skirts and pearls and kind of curly, lovely hair. And, and Louise was so like buttoned up, you know, kind of French twisty and now they're like battered muscle t-shirts covered in smudges. Louise throws away her makeup. Their hair is now like almost similar in style, like kind of towards the end. They're both sort of just like messy ponytail. We're good. Let's go. You know, they they kind of, they go from being opposites to becoming a lot more similar, just like aesthetically. The love, the support, this whole thing that that kiss at the end, right? This kiss, which is an improvised moment in the movie that was something that Susan Sarandon only told uh, Gina Davis she was going to do like there's something about that moment I think it all leads to this I mean I think the movie sadly undercuts itself with this like kind of montage at the end of like all the fun moments that we just saw I would love to let you hang there almost like the Sopranos like a little bit like let me hang in this moment for give me a black mo- give me like or fade to white like give me that white but like there's this moment of like these two characters have committed to each other i almost think that the ending the credit sequence makes it more of a downer because they're like oh they were so happy it's like no no we just saw them achieve like the cat's out of the box you know or whatever you want to say it's like it is they've opened up pandora's box they see the world now there's no turning back the only way they can live in this world is to not live in it and they love each other for what they got and then that's the and then that's the end 
Okay, then, listen. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. What do you mean? Sure. Yeah. Nailing this ending was like impossible. Kelly Curry was like, my promise that I need to get from you, Ridley, is that you will let both women die. And Ridley was like, I promise that I will think about it very hard. And up until the very end, like he was really hoping to kind of convince everybody that the best way to end it is like Louise is driving off the cliff. And then at the last minute, she shoves Thelma out and Thelma gets to live. And then he was like, okay, 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 fine. We'll just, we'll keep them both. We'll keep them both in the car. They That's can both a more downer ending to me, honestly. I know. But like, Louise is, like, protecting that. I don't like it. Um, but then they shoot this ending of it where, like, they change the song. They play, like, this, like, kind of, kind of happy B.B. King song. Mm-hmm. And you watch the car fall. Like, you actually watch it fall, you know, a lot. So it's like, you don't just see the trajectory go up and freeze. You watch it kind of plummet. And then after it like plummets, it kind of cuts to black. And then it like cuts back to seeing the car driving for some reason on that like opening shot. You know, they have is like the road in the hills where the movie starts. You like see the car kind of driving down that road again and just sort of getting lost in a dust storm as though like they magically lived on on this road to Valhalla. Anyway, yeah. That's the, that's the image that's going on over you as you hear this song. And when they test screened that for audiences, they hated it. They hated it. They hated it. Like in the room, they could feel that the crowd was with them as the car started to go off the cliff. And then as the car reappears at the end and starts driving again, people were like, what the fuck? It was like so polarizing. Like only 11% of the test audience people said that they liked the movie because they're like, what on earth? And they were so mad. And so when they screened it again, the cut that they did is they just like cut off the magical car reappearing and let it let it just end hovering in space. And that worked a lot better. But like Ridley had this idea that he really wanted to pull off where like that Polaroid that they take at the very beginning, which was like an improv between Gina and Susan. That was like the first day of filming, actually, is them getting in the car, taking the Polaroid picture. By the way, the first selfie in film. Debatable, but maybe. I mean, uh, I think a National Lampoon's European vacation might have done it first. And I think that's probably the only thing that anyone's ever going to reference as something that uh, European Vacation did uh, first. But <laughs> but like there was this idea that that Polaroid would flap out of the car and then Harvey Keitel would like run up to the edge and grab it. And as he picked up the Polaroid, uh, you would watch the image of them smiling fade away and go back from like a colored Polaroid picture to like a blank exposure, almost as though like they vanished in time, you know, so they like mm. kind of transcended. Uh, but then they're like, we can't do that either. It just seems like too fanciful. And they really were like, we're ending on them. We're just ending on them. But I am with you. Like you see them being happy again. And it does feel like a little bit more of a bummer because you're reminded of how vibrant they were in life. Right. And it's like this movie is really interesting, too, because I, I want to talk about uh, the men before we wrap up as well, because I think one of the digs on this movie, too, was like, oh, well, the men in these this movie is too cartoonish. Right. Every every guy is a cartoon. I mean, I think you could very easily say that 
any woman in a in, in a typical action film with uh, male leads are also cartoons. But oh, yeah, I actually don't started. Oh my god, will you rescue me? Help? Yeah, I yeah. mean, I will say that I think Harvey Keitel is brilliant in this. Like, I love the way he's so loose and fun. Like the way he kind of comes in from the rain in that one scene. Like he's got a real lightness to him that makes him incredibly likable. And I like that he's like hunting these women, being good at his job, but also he's the audience's like, I guess, perspective. Like he doesn't really want to like punish them for their crimes. He gets in trouble for that, but I just love the way he is. And he also responds to the ridiculousness of Christopher McDonald. And apparently that break when he laughs at him, when he's like stepping in the pizza and stuff like that, like that's all, that was just Harvey Keitel could never keep a straight face in doing any scene with Christopher McDonald. Cause Christopher McDonald, I think just improvised a ton of stuff and he's great at playing that kind of asshole yeah. uh, character. I love the bit it, where like all the cops are around and he just like changes the channel to a football game and then realizes yeah. he's being a dick and changes it back again. It's or the way that, a, like, he says hi, like, with almost like, I'm going to call home and we'll know if, like, the cops have told my husband what's happening from, like, how he sounds on the phone. And all he has to say is hello. And she's like, too friendly. Yep. Hello. Daryl, it's me. Hello. Hello. He knows. I need more time. I mean, that is the greatest he knows seed besides like Terminator 2. Your parents are dead. <laughs> and and again, we would be remiss if we don't really like just dig into Brad Pitt for a second as well. Obviously, this is a movie where, you know, I think the Brad Pitt is born, the Brad Pitt that we know. This is the this is the scene. This is, you know, the moment. And I loved his performance here. It's very James Dean-like. I think that again, I'm looking at these movies, I'm looking at Thelma and Louise and True Romance, and I'm going, this is, these are brothers that are stealing from each other in so many different ways, you know, but uh, Brad Pitt gives a great performance. True Romance, he gives a great performance here. Very I mean, different have you ever seen Brad Pitt's first, first film, though? This is a film oh, that I've Johnny Swade? With. Oh, no, not Johnny Swade, although Johnny Swade, highly recommend. I'm talking great. about Dark Side of the Sun. No. Oh, I know Dark Side of the Sun very well because it was written by uh, one of my professors back in Oklahoma. And it's Brad Pitt's first starring role. It's like the movie that made him get a passport for the first time because I think they shot it in Romania. It is a movie where Brad Pitt spends the majority of the time in a handmade leather gimp suit where you can't see anything of his face. Oh, Because the setup is that he's like this handsome son of a rich family, but he is deathly allergic to the sun. And if the sun touches him, he will get Wait, blistered and I think we talked dies. about this on the show yes, before. because I'm obsessed with this movie. I'm obsessed. Oh. I, I pulled a clip just so you could hear him pout to his dad about the sun. No, no, it's not, it's not the sun. Believe me. How do you know? Well, look, look. No blisters, no sores. Huh? What if maybe... These specialists have been wrong all these years, or I've conquered the disease because I feel great. This movie is Eclipse on YouTube. It is just so worth it for watching him in this little gimp suit walk around. It is so worth it for the moment he, like, walks up to the camera with his gimp suit on and then, like, takes off his mask. And you see Brad Pitt's, like, Prince Charming face in full color for the first time ever on cinema. And you're like, whoa, who is that man? 
Well, by the way, he beat out 400 people to be the star of that film. And I would say he probably beat out about the same amount of men to be in this film because everybody wanted to be this Oh, guy. everybody wanted it. I mean, like he was not Ridley Scott's choice. Ridley Scott wanted Billy Baldwin. Ridley Scott was yeah. like, Billy Baldwin is our guy. But then Billy Baldwin decided to do Backdraft like at the last minute, like I think two weeks before they started filming, Billy Baldwin was like, sorry, I'm out. I got a role in Backdraft. And so he like peaced out and they had to like redo all of these auditions right away. Like it was so crowded. Apparently at one point, Dylan McDermott auditioned at three o'clock. Dermot Mulrooney auditioned at 3.30. And and, and uh, I, I forget, I think it was like, God, which one of them was dating Catherine Keener? I think Mulroney was dating Catherine Keener uh, and he brought Catherine Keener to his audition and they loved Catherine Keener and they gave her the role of Harvey Keitel's wife, which got completely cut out. It's not in the movie at all. But like Catherine Keener wound up with a part and Dermot Mulroney didn't. Um, but like they thought Brad Pitt was way too young for the role. They thought he looked too kind of scrawny, which I think works for the character, but they didn't like it. Um, but when they were in this like pinch, like this last minute crunch because of Billy Baldwin like backing out, they had to redo a bunch of auditions really fast. And so Gina Davis did this chemistry test with like she said three brunettes. And Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt was so handsome that she kept screwing up their scene because she couldn't get their lines right. And she was just like apologizing to him and like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm ruining your audition. Ah, But like every time she'd look at him, she'd get really nervous. And then when the audition ended, like Ridley and the producers were like debating which of the three brunettes to cast. And Gina, thinking of Susan and thinking of how Susan kept sticking up for what she thought was best for this movie was like, uh, can I have a say in this? It's the blonde one, duh. And they were like, oh, okay. And that is how they cast Brad Pitt in this movie. And then like years later, uh, George Clooney comes up to Gina Davis and he's like, do you remember that we auditioned together? And he had been one of the brunettes, but she just like was not. Yeah. And she doesn't remember him. She did not she remember, remember that. <laughs> doesn't remember him. But it like, yeah, you see Brad Pitt in this movie. You see him in this hairdryer scene and you're like. Yeah, that's a movie star. And I just kind of waltz on in and I say, ladies, gentlemen, let's see who wins the prize for keeping their cool. Simon says, everybody down on the floor. Now, nobody loses their head, then nobody loses their head. Uh, you, sir. Yeah, you do the honors. Take that cash, you put it in that bag right there. You got an amazing story to tell your friends. If not, well, you got a tag on your toe. You decide. Simple as that. Then I just slip on out. And uh, get the hell out of Dodge, yeah. I do believe they have something. Like, yeah, he's a thief and he's, you know, dumb, smart, whatever. I mean, I think he's a little bit of both, but like he tells you who he is. He, you know, she knows who he is, but I don't think he is. I think they have something. And I think that there is something there. I mean, what do you think? Or is he just using her? I mean, I think he's definitely using her, but I think he's having fun using her. And if she didn't have money, he probably would have boned her anyway. And he didn't know about the money, but he's just like, right. he bones her before I think he knows about the money, but it's not going to stop him from taking the money. Right. Yeah. They could have just had a magical night, but then she had to leave the money out. I totally agree. And then I want to also just call out uh, Jason Beggy. Is that how you pronounce his name? He's the cop that they put in the trunk. You oh, know, yeah. I, I also like the way that they play him too. Like for him to cry in that scene, which I don't think was in the script. Again, a lot of people are improvising, a lot of people are making these choices with these characters. And I think like, you know, to see that like like kind of snot or him drool a little bit before he gets in the car is a great thing. It like it shows men in these various states 
maybe they're stereotypical or maybe they're broad, but they're also very different types of men from the trucker to the cop to everything. And I think what's really interesting about this too is they could go on a killing spree. It could be very Bonnie and Clyde and they're not doing that. Like they're, they, they are respecting people. They're fucking with people and they are getting back on a world with authority figures and these men, like whether it's that trucker and by blowing up his truck, like, you know, they're creating a scene and putting a cop in a truck, like they're taking the power back. And I think that each one of these men kind of reveals themselves of who they are when stripped of the power. And it's interesting that like Harvey Keitel arguably has the most power of all the men in the film. And he's the one that is the least um, absurd, yeah. right? Cause he's almost like, you know, he's not trying to be anything that he's not. I think everybody else in this movie is like, I'm a cop. I'm this, I'm a truck driver. Show me your tits. Um, you know, I, like every, like even Brad Pitt, like, I'm, uh, you know, like, every, like he, the way he like shows how he's a robber, you know, with the hairdryer, it's like, everyone's trying to be something or, or, or put on this facade of who they are. And I think it's really interesting that like it, the movie strips away every one of those male personas and i think that that's maybe what people were reacting to and i don't think it was like oh these are badly drawn male characters well i think it's so weird to me that people lost their minds over the cop scene because i'm like it's not that bad they shot air holes in the trunk so he could breathe like yes so many cops have died in movies you know and they're like that's not that bad they like they left him in the car he lives they're not trying you know, to kill him. They're not even trying to scare him, really. Yeah. I they're mean, just trying they, to get him out of the way. They give him some advice to how to treat his wife. Yeah. They, I mean, but, they're, they're, yeah. they're helping. But that was one of the big fights between like Ridley and Callie Curry over the truck driver because she thought that the truck driver, you know, was just way over the top. And like the actor who plays the truck driver, um, his name is Marco St. John. He was like, I was directed to be like way, way, way over the top. He's like, I'm a Shakespearean actor. Like Shakespeare is my thing. You know, like the, I'm not this guy. But that um, really was like bigger, 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 make him really kind of big and funny. You know, so until he starts playing the scenes like this. Yeah, I've been seeing you too. Yeah, we think you have really bad manners. <laughs> yeah, where did you get off behaving like that with women you didn't even know? Huh? <laughs> huh? How'd you feel if somebody did that to your mother? Or your sister? Or your wife? Huh? What are you talking about? You know good and damn well what I'm talking about. I mean, really? That business with your tongue? What is that? That is disgusting. And oh my God, that other shit of pointing to your lap. I mean, what is that supposed to mean exactly, huh? I mean, does that mean pull over? I want to show you what a big fat slob I am? Yeah, or does that a... mean suck my dick? You went crazy. You got that right. We think you should apologize. I ain't apologizing for shit. You say you're sorry. Fuck that. Kelly hated it. She thought it would just made it a caricature. And in a way, I think she was a little bit more right on this one because it's this trucker and these scenes and him being so horrendous that I think opened the door for people to be like, all the men in this movie are stupid. Because really, all of the men in this movie are not stupid, but that man is like really stupid. And I think he does pop and makes it easier to put that that can that like out there because like there are creepy men but they're not that that dumb usually yeah and i mean look i get that and and it's uh you know i think the people are just probably upset about the waste of all that gas i mean you know but a yeah. tanker truck like that i mean my gosh but i guess I, what i want to go back to is just like 
why are we putting it through such a microscope? We don't ever do that on, you know, a male-fronted film. Like, we're not going, well, I think that one character was a little broad. Like, no one's going through a Steven Seagal movie going like, well, I mean, the way that you painted the Jamaicans really made them out to be uh, incredibly stupid. You know, it's like, you know, it's like this... There is like this funny double standard. It's like, well, no, we hold you to a higher standard because, you know, you're yeah, you're because trying to do something bigger. Role, yeah, yeah. It, they, because they need this movie to be about role models or something. Like, it's right. like you have two women expressing liberation. Surely they should be role models. You're like Liz Smith, you know, the, the writer who writes for like Newsday. She was like, these people are horrible role models. You know, she's like, she was mad that Thelma and Louise don't talk about AIDS, that they don't talk about using condoms, that they're not worried about getting, you know, like murdered by a serial killer on the road. Like adding all of these problems to this because like these they women are have to like days. stand They've up for so all much. Them. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I get so frustrated by this, like women have to be role models conversation because that's how we wind up with like a million boring Sundance movies or like, Brie Larson smug facing her way through like all of these films and like which used to be so interesting. Like, like I don't want our women to have to carry this weight. Well, this is, I think, the argument that I'm talking about uh, when I talk about the end of the movie. Like the fact that they drive off the cliff means we don't have to do this. We don't have to carry anything more. We can go out on our own terms. And that to me is incredibly exciting like i know you want to see that mexico ending with the margaritas and i don't think that that's bad because we want our heroes to succeed but i think there's something so much more powerful in true romance they go to mexico at the end again to me draw this line to true romance like they get to mexico they're on a beach what's their life going to be like i don't know we leave it open-ended you know they are they're in love and that's what we get out on we're getting out on they found love um but that's what these characters did too. I mean, it's it's the same ending. It's like they, they found love, they found life. And I love that waitress in the in the bar, you know, when she's being interviewed by Harvey Keitel, like she just gets the back of Thelma and Louise. Like yeah, she's she been does. there, you know, it's like, and there's something really cool about that. Like there's something cool about like what this movie is saying, because you think maybe she's dealt with that woman has dealt with guys like this nonstop. That woman has dealt with that particular guy. Nonstop. She knows. Yes. Him. Right. And it's like, and probably in her darkest moment, she's like, I wish someone would fucking deal with this guy. You know, I think there yeah. is this like, that's why I think it's that like, this movie wish is wish. I his wife would have killed him. Yeah. And yeah. that's why I think it's like a happy ending doesn't have to be like they get away with it. I think a happy ending can be like they were fulfilled. And I think when I go back and I think about this movie, I go like they were fulfilled. You know, no one's going to get an answer. They get to fuck up everything. You know, if it's even just paperwork, they have to, you know, these guys have to do it. Like they get to do something. I avenge myself on you with my paperwork. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think for Callie Curry, I mean, she had this line about it when she won her screenplay Oscar. Hi. Well, for everybody that wanted to see a happy ending for Thelma and Louise, to me, this is it. You know, I'll go for that, too. I'll go for that, too. I'm glad that she won the Oscar for this. It is, of course, one of those things where everybody's like, and Thelma Louise will open the door for millions and millions and millions of more female-driven films. And that did not happen again. No. I mean, like this argument that always happens. I remember when Sex and the City came out and it made all that money. And people were like, oh, I guess women do want to go see movies. You know, and it's like, oh, and then Girls Trip came out. I was like, oh, 
But I guess people will come out to the movies. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like it's a constant uh, amazement that if you make movies <laughs> for an uh, underserved demographic, uh, you know, that they will want to see see that. And it, all, all we do is see it time and time again. And it seems like everyone's shocked every time it happens. It is. I mean, I feel like now at least we could make this movie, but it probably wouldn't have the budget enough to have a lot of oil tankers explode. It'd be a digital oil tanker. But like I was looking online for like original Thelma and Louise shirts. I was like, I wonder if they still have any shirts available from when this came out now that I've yeah. seen Thelma and Louise and now that I love it. And one of the shirts I found was like a shirt that um, relates to like a really famous rape trial that was that year in 1991, you know, where William Kennedy Smith, um, you know, related to the Kennedys was like accused of raping a woman and was acquitted. There's a shirt that says, like, William Kennedy Smith meet Thelma and Louise. And it's just, like, that stark phrase over a picture of Gina Davis holding a pistol. Huh. And, like, yeah, that that felt very, very much like a shirt that would exist today. You know, very much like a shirt that we need today. Yeah, but, but wait, but, there, but that, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I'm not saying everything is hunky-dory, but I do think that the cultural ramifications of this film continue, and I think it continues with... Gina Davis specifically with like well, yeah. this Institute on Gender and Media, which is an amazing organization, which is, you know, I think what happens to Gina Davis very briefly is she's watching uh, films with her kids and realizes like, oh my gosh, there's no, like, there's just no female representation in these films and makes these appeals to studios and, and talks to Disney and Pixar and all these different companies. Like, how can we change this? And like, she, you know, by her experience in this movie, this what the Gina Davis Institute has been doing for gender media, you know, which is their aim is to improve female representation in film and TV. Like this is important, like all these things. And I know that's not equal and it's 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 not I'm not saying everything is perfect, but I do think that it's impressive that this movie from the 90s whether it's our characters in it, the people behind it, or even this conversation we're having can still be interesting can still be worthy of having this conversation. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things I wish. Like I wish I wish I could have seen this movie without knowing they died. I wish I could have like been on this trip with them and been like worried and been like hopeful and like and like experienced more of of the more of the adventure with them. Right. You know, that's kind of how I feel about watching this movie now and like thinking back upon its influence. And I wish that in a way, I feel like this movie has been, I don't know, cutely contained, I guess is what I'm thinking of. Like, I feel like whenever I hear of like women going on road trips and stuff, it's like Thelma and Louise on the road, you know, or like my, my mom and my grandma would go on road trips through Texas to like look up genealogy things. And I remember my beloved, beloved uncle referring to them as like their Thelma and Louise trips and my mom in all seriousness being like, which one is Thelma and which one is Louise and being really concerned about what the answer was. But it yeah. like had it had stopped even meaning that. It had stopped even meaning like these characters and just meant like women doing things in a car on their own. And, you know, I think that Gina Davis, if this movie radicalized Gina Davis and Gina Davis started the conversation that I think in the last five years has had more of an effect than it did in like all of the 90s, then I really appreciate that. I do really appreciate that. But I do feel like, man, nothing got much better until I feel much more recently. 
A hundred percent, you know, and I, I thought that Gina Davis said some interesting thing about this movie because, I, you know, we talked a little bit about the reviews and there's a lot of reviews out there. Like I said, there's a million think pieces and I'm sure you have some stuff pulled, but it, suffice it to say, whatever, you, you know, people can make an argument about a lot of different things. And she said, you know, if you're threatened by this movie, you're identifying with the wrong person. Right. If you're watching um, this movie and you're like, they're so mean to the guys. It's like, well, have you thought about not feeling about how the guys feel all the time? Yeah, because audiences are so used to men playing the leads that they identify with them, even when that's not the case. You know, like I, I think even, you know, uh, Susan Sarandon's like people missed the rape. They don't think about it when they were viewing the movie. They're not looking at like the the moment. They're just kind of bypassing that. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but, you know, it's like, no, no, that no, that that that's the thing. Yeah. You know, again, it's, you know, I don't think that the think pieces for, you know, a Charles Bronson movie was as layered as this was, you know, it's like, oh, they got my, you know, the guy, my family, I'm after him. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> that's it. It's true. But do you want to hear about what a critic said at the time? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. So this is Sheila Benson at the LA Times and the LA Times did that thing where like they ran a review that was pretty positive, but then they kept running think pieces from other critics that were negative throughout the next couple of weeks. And so Sheila wrote this the week after it came out and she said, call Thumb and Louise anything you want, but please don't call it feminism as some writers are already doing. As I understand it, feminism has to do with responsibility, equality, sensitivity, understanding, not revenge, retribution, or sadistic behavior. Rather than being equals, the men are drawn for the express purpose of being toppled, fatally or otherwise, with the exception of Harvey Keitel. The rest reflect an awful contempt for all men. They're vile or sniveling, or in the case of a rapist, both, and proud of it. Thumb and Louise pushes bloody, sadistic, explosive revenge for the evils men do. Shoot them, blow up their vehicle or stuff them, whimpering into the trunk of their own car in the desert sun. Action like this is despicable. Why should it be any more acceptable when it's done by women? Because it's our turn? No, thank you. Are we so starved for quote-unquote strong women's roles that this revenge and the pell-mell lunatic flight that follows fits anyone's definition of strength or even more peculiarly of neo-feminism? How could Thelma, beaten and saved from a gratuitously shot rape attempt by murder at close range, beg to pick up a strange hitchhiker 18 hours later because she likes the cut of his jeans? To write such perky bounce back does not suggest resilience. It suggests that nobody is home emotionally. Must our heroines be unconscious as well as terminally dumb? Having pushed its characters into a no-win situation, the filmmakers now cast their deaths as freedom, when in fact their fate all along has been determined by men, not their own choice. Some feminism. Mm. You know, I'm with you. I don't like the idea that any strong female character on screen has to represent responsibility, equality, sensitivity, understanding. They don't. So right. I agree. I agree with I I agree with you. But I can also imagine in the 90s writing this piece because I just want to be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. If this is representing all of feminism, which is how it felt, being more irritated. I, I'm very curious to see this movie again because I also feel like it's a movie that probably ages a lot better the more times you see it in the sense that I think I was just enjoying the ride and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is different than what I thought. And this is amazing. And you know, my thoughts still about it are I'm wrestling with it. And I think it's a movie that it feels at points, you know, I was talking to uh, my wife June about it and she was like, I find the movie to be incredibly depressing. Like that that's the only way out is through death. 
And, you know, we were talking about that. And I, like, I think maybe at different points in your life, you look at it differently too. I, I'm curious to revisit this movie and just kind of, now that I've seen it, to watch it again and look out for these little things. Because this is all like very much first thought when I feel like we've, where if you Google Thelma and Louise, there's like, looking back at this 25 year, 30 year, this, you know, like every, you know, everyone's looking back on this movie. I agree. Does that mean you want to watch it again with me in like five years? Let's do it. Five years ago. All right. It's a pack. Last episode. <laughs> okay. Well, in the meantime, before this podcast drives off a cliff in five years and self-destructs, I think that we should do another, another controversial girl prank that I enjoy a lot. We're about to hear a lot of Darren Aronofsky chatter because the whale is coming out. But what if we go back to another movie he made named after a bird starring two women, Black Swan? I had the craziest dream last night about a girl who was turned into a swan. But her prince falls for the wrong girl and she kills herself. He promised to feature me more this season. Well, he should. You've been there long enough. And you're the most dedicated dancer in the company. Our new swan queen, the exquisite Nina Sayers. I'm Lily. You're gonna be amazing. Watch the way she moves. Sensual. She's not faking it. Seduces! Attack it! Attack it! Come on! Where'd you get these? It's nothing. You sweet girl. Feel my touch. Respond to it. So was hot for teacher. I don't want to talk about that. We really need to relax. It's the role, isn't it? It's all this pressure. I knew it'd be too much. I knew it. Ow. What's she doing here? He made me your alternate. The only person standing in your way is you. Ooh, I'm excited to rewatch this. I haven't seen it since the theater. Uh... And I really forgotten a lot about it, but I did love it when I originally saw it. So does it hold up? We will find out. All right. Challenge accepted. Black Swan is available wherever you stream your films. And you can also check out your local public library for ways to stream it for free. If you like listening to Unspooled, well, you have a lot of people to thank. As a matter of fact, you can thank our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy. Kim Troxel does all of our fan art. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you rate and review us on Apple and Amazon or wherever you rate and review podcasts. Plus, you can follow us for the latest up to the minute discourse on Twitter and Instagram, but also on the Paul Shear Discord, where we host a very exclusive Unspooled chat. It's nice. It's fun. Social media. If you want an Unspooled t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can also check out Podswag for exclusive merch. Get back episodes of the show and bonuses like Screen Test if you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. And check out the official API, that's the Amy and Paul Institute list, at unspooledpod.com. Mm-hmm.